Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, my name is Michael Ian Black, and this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I have said before, it's probably not a good idea, but now I'm so deep into it. I am so balls deep into Jude that even if the podcast were to be canceled tomorrow, I would probably still sit here in the library read the book out loud and comment on it as I go just to myself because I'm fully invested. And here's where we are with Jude. So he's been stalking his cousin. Not weird. Really not weird at all. Just a thing that dudes do when they find out they're related to somebody and they've never met them, but they happen to have seen their picture. So they learn everything they possibly can about them, show up at their work, show up at where they go to church, hang out, follow them. Like not weird, really not weird at all. He has not yet revealed himself to her, meaning she does not yet know he exists. And in the last episode, I compared that to, uh, as I compare everything to Taco Bell. The very last thing that happened was she has just left her seat in church and he's following her outside. Uh, Her name is Sue, by the way. And he's dressed up in his best Sunday suit. He's wondering, should should he reveal himself? And, and he says, but he was not quite ready. And alas, ought he to do so with the kind of feeling that was awakening in him? For though it seemed to have an ecclesiastical, I hate that he keep using this word, ecclesiastical. It's so hard for me to say. And all it means is like churchy. Can we just say churchy? For though it had seemed to have a churchy basis during the service, and he had persuaded himself that such was the case, he could not altogether be blind to the real nature of the magnetism, which is this. He wants to fuck his cousin. She was such a stranger that the kinship was affectation. Right. Of course. He doesn't know her. And he said, It can't be. I, a man with a wife, must not know her. Still, Sue was his own kin, and the fact of his having a wife, even though she was not in evidence in this hemisphere, 
might be a help in one sense. It would put all thought of a tender wish on his part out of Sue's mind and make her intercourse with him free and fearless. So he's lying to himself. And he knows he's lying to himself, but he's lying to himself about the lie. And he's saying, I have a wife, like she's my cousin. I can hang out with her and Sue won't be freaked out. She'll be like, yeah, he's, he has a wife. Uh, He's my cousin. Like nothing's going to happen here. Um, And that's how Jude wants it to appear. But in fact, in the back of his mind, he's going, well, maybe, maybe something romantic will develop there. His aunt had told him to stay away, and I think we're learning why. Just stay away, Jude. It was with some heartache that he saw how little he cared for the freedom and fearlessness that would result in her from such knowledge. Right. That's exactly what I just said, that he's lying to himself. I mean, he's got to tread very carefully here, as far as I'm concerned, because I have been nothing but sympathetic to poor, stupid, pathetic little Jude. But now he's turning into kind of a psycho. And I can't get with a psycho like that. I mean, if he starts hacking people up, this book will have taken a turn that I was not expecting. Uh, and I really don't think that's what's going to happen. I mean, I think, I think Jude is going to stay a good guy. I think. I don't know. Some little time before the date of this service in the cathedral, the pretty liquid-eyed, light-footed young woman, Sue Bridehead, had an afternoon's holiday. Uh, And leaving the ecclesiastical churchy establishment in which she not only assisted but lodged, took a walk into the country with a book in her hand. It was one of those cloudless days which sometimes occur in Wessex, between days of cold and wet, as if intercalated, intercalated, I don't know, by caprice of the weather god. She went along for a mile or two until she came to much higher ground than that of the city she had left behind. The road passed between green fields, and coming to a stile, Sue paused there to finish the page she was reading and then looked back at the towers and domes and pinnacles, new and old. So Sue does what Jude does. Like the one thing that Jude is saying about her is like, she's just like me. She's just like me. She's my cousin. And she looks like me. And, and she likes, she likes things. And she works at a churchy shop and she does churchy things. And she's got, she likes reading books. And that's what's going on here. Like, and we're flashing back in time, which is something we haven't done before with Thomas Hardy in this book. We're flashing back and we're changing uh, points of view here. We're following Sue Bridehead and uh, all her churchy ways and her churchy things. And then she, like Jude, goes to the top of a hill and looks down at Christminster. So it's like, I mean, this was meant to be, right? How ecclesiastical is this? On the other side of the stile, in the footpath, she beheld a foreigner with black hair and a sallow face sitting on the grass beside a large square board whereon were fixed as closely as they could stand a number of plaster statuettes some of them bronzed, which he was rearranging before proceeding with them on his way. 
They were in the main reduced copies of ancient marbles and comprised divinities of a very different character from those the girl was accustomed to see portrayed, among them being a Venus of standard pattern, a Diana, and of the other sex, Apollo, Bacchus, and Mars. Though the figures were many yards away from her, the southwest sun brought them out so brilliantly against the green herbage that she could discern their contours with luminous distinctness, and being almost in a line between herself and the church towers of the city, they awoke in her an oddly foreign and contrasting set of ideas by comparison. The man rose, and seeing her, politely took off his cap and cried, eh, 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 wait, what? What does he cry? Eh, eh, images, in an accent that agreed with his appearance. Eh, 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 images. <laughs> Whatever my interpretation of that is, I don't like it. Uh, but let's keep going and maybe maybe I'll figure it out a little bit more. In a moment, he dexterously lifted upon his knee the great board with its assembled notabilities divine and human and raised it to the top of his head, bringing them onto her and resting the board on the stile. First, he offered her his smaller wares, the busts of kings and queens, then a minstrel, then a winged cupid. She shook her head. How much are these two, she said, touching with her finger the Venus and the Apollo, the largest figures on the tray? He said she could have them for ten shillings. I cannot afford that, said Sue. She offered considerably less, and to her surprise, the image man drew them from their wire stay and handed them over the stile. She clasped them as treasures. When they were paid for and the man had gone, she began to be concerned as to what she should do with them. They seemed so very large now that they were in her possession and so very naked. Being of a nervous temperament, she trembled at her enterprise. When she handled them, the white pipe clay came off on her gloves and jacket. After carrying them a little way openly, an idea came to her, and pulling some huge burdock leaves, parsley, and other rank growths from the hedge, she wrapped up her burden as well as she could in these, so that what she, appe- what she carried appeared to be an enormous armful of green stuff gathered by a zealous lover of nature." So I don't know if she's embarrassed because they're naked or what her deal is, uh, but she's got these little statues. And of course, but Jude, Jude makes statues. Jude is a, Jude is a stone carver. Jude, Jude makes things like, I mean, Thomas Hardy is just setting this up to be the greatest love story in the entire world. So he's setting it up. And then like a statue, he's going to take a sledgehammer and smash it to bits. That's what he's going to do. He's carving Michelangelo's David here. And then he's just like like the Taliban did with those big statues there in Afghanistan. He's just going to dynamite the shit out of it. And they're going to come crumbling down to dust and the world is going to go, what a shame. I'm not looking for things to be a shame right now. Like I need a little uplifting. I need a little uplifting in my life. We all do. This love story. Why don't we just say this love story is going to be grand and let it be that. But it won't be. Well, anything is better than those everlasting church falals, 
she said. What's a foul? F-A-L dash L-A-L-S. Let me look this up. Uh, oh, like costume jewelry. Fakes. Falallery. So she's saying anything's better than those everlasting church fakes, basically. But uh, she was still in a trembling state and seemed almost to wish she had not bought the figures. Occasionally peeping inside the leaves to see that Venus's arm was not broken, she entered with her heathen load into the most Christian city in the country by an obscure street running parallel to the main one, and round a corner to the side door of the establishment to which she was attached. Her purchases were taken straight up to her own chamber, and she at once attempted to lock them in a box that was her very own property, but finding them too cumbersome, she wrapped them in large sheets of brown paper and stood them on the floor in a corner. So you and I, modern readers that we are, and lovers of all things artsy, we're like, yeah, she bought these little statues. Great. Good for her. But in her mind, she bought these statues and it's like she bought hardcore porn because not only are they not Christian statues, they are Roman gods, but they are naked as the day is long, guys. They're just nudies. She bought like a double issue of Hustler and she's sneaking it back into her apartment which is, like they said, an ecclesiastical establishment. It's, a, it's associated with the church in some capacity. And so she's sneaking them up. She's got nowhere to put them. So like in a Scooby-Doo cartoon, she covers them with paper. And she's like, no, there's nothing here. I'm just a lamp. They're like monsters looking for me. I'm just a lamp. I just You can tell by the lampshade on my head. Like I'm, I'm totally not a giant nudie statue of a heathen god. So don't even worry about it. Um, the mistress of the house, Miss Fontover, was an elderly lady in spectacles dressed almost like an abbess. A dab at ritual has become one of her business and a worshipper at the ceremonial church of St. Silas in the suburb of Beersheba before mentioned, which Jude also had begun to attend. She was the daughter of a clergyman in reduced circumstances, and at his death, which had occurred several years before this date, she boldly ab avoided penury by taking over a little shop of church requisites and developing it to its present creditable proportions. So I guess that's the shop that Sue works in. She wore a cross and beads round her neck as her only ornament and knew the Christian year by heart. Oh, she's not going to like this at all when she steps into Sue Bridehead's little room and sees Apollo's big sausage dangling down. Sue Bridehead might find herself kicked right out onto the curb with Apollo by her side, his big, his big meat stick just dangling down to his knees. She now came to call Sue to tea and finding that the girl did not respond for a moment, entered the room just as the other was hastily putting a string round each parcel. Something you have been buying, Miss Bridehead, she asked, regarding the enwrapped objects. Yes, just something to ornament my room, said Sue. Yeah, big old ding dong. Well, I should have thought that I had put enough here already said Miss Oh, God. <laughs> She's offended that Sue bought something to put in her room. 
"'Well, I should have thought I had put enough here already,' said Miss Fontover, looking round at the gothic-framed prints of saints, the church text scrolls, and other articles, which, having become too stale to sell, had been used to furnish this obscure chamber. "'Obscure!' "'What is it? How bulky!' She tore a little hole about as big as a wafer in the brown paper and tried to peep in. "'Why, statuary? Two figures. Where did you get them?' "'Oh, I bought them of a traveling man who sells casts. Two saints?' "'Yes.' "'What ones?' "'Saint Peter and Saint... Saint Mary Magdalene.' "'Oh, she's just lying through her teeth.' She's lying through her teeth because she knows Fontover's going to be pierced if she sees Apollo's long, dong, slong hanging down. Well, come now down to tea and go and finish that organ text if there's light enough afterwards. These little obstacles to the indulgence of what had been the merest passing fancy created in Sue a great zest for unpacking her objects and looking at them. And at bedtime, when she was sure of being undisturbed, she unrobed the divinities in comfort. I bet she did. Placing the pair of figures on the chest of drawers, a candle on each side of them, she withdrew to the bed, flung herself down thereon, and began reading a book she had taken from her box, which Miss Fontover knew nothing of. It was a volume of Gibbon, and she read the chapter dealing with the reign of Julian the Apostate. A Gibbon wrote, uh, what did Gibbon write? Is he Roman Empire? Is that Gibbon? Uh, English historian, member of parliament, yeah, History and Decline of the Fall of the Roman Empire. So she's reading that. She's reading Gibbon. Listen to me, obscure listeners. If you are not totally impressed that I knew the reference to Gibbon and had it confirmed by Google there, what the fuck? That was pretty good of me. I mean, I have often referred to myself as a legitimate idiot, and I think that is correct. However, in this one instance, this one lovely instance. Please, guys, give me a little credit. Let's take a quick break. This is Obscure. This week, Earwolf is transforming into something scary, scary, scary. Fearwolf is coming to haunt your precious ears with spooky episodes and hair-raising special guests on all your favorite shows. On Unspooled, Paul Shear, Amy Nicholson break down one of the most influential horror films of all time, Psycho, which is apropos because Jude is a psycho. Hear an interview with horror master and director of Fright Night, Tom Holland, on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast on Who Charted or Should It Be Boo Charted. Howard Kramer and guest Tiff Stevenson count down the top Halloween songs and 
movies. So it's a lot of stuff. You got Womp It Up. You got Hello from the Magic Tavern. Uh, everybody doing doing spooky Halloween stuff. So head over to Stitcher Premium, or should I say Stitcher Screamium, to get some couples costume tips from Sean and Hayes on the Hollywood Handbook Pro version. Don't miss your favorite Fearwolf shows this week on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You're listening to Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. Back to the book. And she read the chapter dealing with the reign of Julian the Apostate. Occasionally, she looked up at the statuettes, which appeared strange and out of place. There happening to be a cavalry print hanging between them. And as if the scene suggested the action, she at length jumped up and withdrew another book from her box, a volume of verse, and turned to the familiar poem. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has grown gray from thy breath. All right, I'll be honest, that poem was not familiar to me. The pale Galilean, that's what, Jesus? And the world has grown gray from thy breath? Why? I don't know. Which she read to the end. Presently, she put out the candles, undressed, and finally extinguished her own light. She was of an age which usually sleeps soundly, yet tonight she kept waking up, and every time she opened her eyes, there was enough diffused light from the street to show her the white plaster figures standing on the chest of drawers in odd contrast to their environment of text and martyr in the gothic-framed crucifix picture that was only discernible now as a Latin cross, the figure thereon being obscured, obscure by the shades. On one of these occasions, the church clocks struck some small hour. It fell upon the ears of another person who sat bending over his books at a not very distant spot in the same city. I bet we know who that is. Right, guys? I bet we know. Being Saturday night, the morrow was one on which Jude had not set his alarm clock to call him at his usually early time, and hence he had stayed up, as was his custom, two or three hours later than he could afford to do on any other day of the week. Just then, he was earnestly reading from the Greisbox text. <laughs> God damn it. Like I was all... All happy with myself because I knew who Gibbon was. I have no idea who Greisbach is, and I'm just going to look it up right now. I'm hoping that it's another heathen author. No, 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 no. Uh, because the author that I'm looking up is Michael Greisbach, who wrote The Innocent Killer in 2014, and I suspect that's not what he was reading. Oh, synoptic and text J.J. Greisbach. So it's some Christian dude. So she's reading heathen literature. He is reading the synoptic and text of Greisbach at the very time that Sue was tossing and staring at her figures. The policeman and belated citizens passing under along under his window might have heard if they had stood still. Strange symbols mumbled with fervor within words that had for Jude an indescribable enchantment 
inexplicable sounds, something like these. All hemin hias theos ho pater ex how tampata kai hemesis ice outen. <laughs> Whatever. So the sounds rolled with reverent loudness as a book was heard to close. Kai heis curios lesus Christos di how tapanta kai hemesis di autau. <laughs> I don't want to look all this up, but I mean, I okay, Potter, Father, Theos, Ho Potter, God, Godfather, the Godfather. He's reading the Godfather, Jesus Christ, Curios, right? Something Jesus y. He's enraptured. She's reading Gibbons and studying the naked Roman gods. And they are living in a kind of otherworldly plane, the two of them. They are both elevated beings studying the mystics, studying the gods. And her fascination with Christ is fading in the darkness. She, the, the figure of Christ himself is now obscured, obscured as she's sitting in bed and she's looking at the cross. And the figures of much more prominence are Apollo and Venus. And she's engaged in a uh, pre-Christian mythology right now, a pre-Christian theology. And she's all excited about it. She can't even sleep. She's so excited about it. And really, she is worshiping here love and beauty and music and poetry. And she is she she's surrounded by the staleness of the old church, the things that have grown too stale uh, to even sell at the churchy shop in which she works. And so she brings some new life to it. She brings some new life to her surroundings. She, she is on the lookout for something new in her life. And she's not going to find it from Miss Fontover. And she's not going to find it from the old saints adorning her walls in the prints. And, she's, and she may not even find it in Jesus himself. And so she buys these hardcore pornographic statues, puts them on her chest of drawers, and tries to go to sleep. And meanwhile, Jude is enraptured with J.J. Greisbach. They're both looking for something. And they might just find it, y'all. That is the end of chapter three. We'll go into a bit of chapter four. But let's take a quick break first. And then we'll come back here on Obscure. Back here on Obscure, your reader here, Michael Ian Black, and we're going to go into uh, just a wee bit of chapter four. He was a handyman at his trade, an all-round man, as artisans in country towns are apt to be. In London, the man who carves the boss or knob of leafage declines to cut the fragment of molding which merges in that leafage as if it were a degradation to do the second half of one whole. When there was not much gothic molding for Jude to run, or much window tracery on the bankers, he would go out lettering monuments or tombstones and take a pleasure in the change of handiwork. The next time that he saw her was when he was on a ladder, executing a job of this sort inside one of the churches. 
There was a short morning service, and when the parson entered, Jude came down from his ladder and sat with the half-dozen people forming the congregation till the prayers should be ended and he could resume his tapping. He did not observe till the service was half over that one of the women was Sue, who had perforce accompanied the elderly Miss Fontover thither. So that must be the little uh, little uh, St. Silas, right? That, that, that was aforementioned uh, right before. Jude sat watching her pretty shoulders, her easy, curiously nonchalant risings and sittings, and her perfunctory genuflections, and thought what a help such an Anglican would have been to him in happier circumstances. Oh, yes. Such a help those Anglicans, aren't they? In happy circumstances, uh, it was not so much his anxiety to get on with his work that made him go up to it immediately the worshippers began to take their leave. It was that he dared not, in this holy spot, confront the woman who was beginning to influence him in such an indescribable manner. Those three enormous reasons why he must not attempt intimate acquaintance with Sue Bridehead now that his interest in her had shown itself to be unmistakably of a sexual kind loomed as stubbornly as ever. But it was also obvious that man could not live by work alone, that the particular man Jude at any rate wanted something to love. Some men would have rushed incontinently to her, snatched the pleasure of easy friendship which she could hardly refuse, and have left the rest to chance, not so Jude, at first. But as the days, and still more particularly, the lonely evenings dragged along, he found himself, to his moral consternation, to be thinking more of her instead of thinking less of her, and experiencing a fearful bliss in doing what was erratic, informal, and unexpected. Surrounded by her influence all day, walking past the spots she frequented, he was always thinking of her, and was obliged to own to himself that his conscience was likely to be the loser in this battle. So we leave today essentially where we started, with Jude pining for Sue Bridehead, that delicious poblano pepper taste in his mouth. In the last episode, I talked about how it's like eating a little spicy pepper when you meet somebody and you can kind of stand the heat, but it could quickly become too painful and uh, unbearably hot. Well, I think the heat has been rising in Jude and he's getting his spice on. But what we've learned this week is that Sue is also a little spicy, isn't she? Looking at Apollo's ding-a-lang. She herself is searching for something kind of ineffable. She does not even necessarily know what she wants. But she finds herself drawn to new things, new ideas. She finds herself stifled in the little rooming house where she lives, stifled in the little churchy shop where she illuminates her manuscripts, uh, singing Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And Jude is hard at work as ever, 
tap, tap, tapping his own letters, tapping out perhaps his own. Alleluia. But first, they have to meet. Will, when will it be? Will it be the next episode? Perhaps. I mean, his conscience is going to be the loser in this battle. He's already said it. He's already admitted to himself that his feelings for her are sexual. He has admitted to himself that things are about to get complicated because he just needs somebody to love. And his only experience with love was a disaster, so much so that the object of that love is now in an entirely different hemisphere, as he said. So what will happen? Will they meet? Of course. Will they fall in love? Perhaps. Will there be some tragedy? You bet your sweet ass. But how will all of this unfold? We don't know. But perhaps we'll make a little progress in next week's totally off the chain episode of Obscure. And until then, I bid you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Judy Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher. Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aki Presents. 